Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Please join us for a live face-to-face exploration of creativity and play in June during three experiential creativity workshops in New Haven, Connecticut. Topics include embodying creativity through play and movement, engaging creativity in the workplace, and creativity, purpose, and life work. You can find out more at appliedimagination.org. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Aaron Dignan, founding partner and CEO of Undercurrent. His recently released book is Game Frame, which explores the intersection of game mechanics and everyday life. Aaron Dignan, welcome to Creativity and Play. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I, I gather one of your basic messages is make work more like play. Tell us a little more about what you mean by that. Well, I think, you know, I uh, I actually do digital strategy by day and, and study games by night, and, and I was really intrigued with why... I was seeing sort of Twitter-like, you know, behavior, Facebook-like behavior that started to feel more and more like a game where people were maybe competing on how many friends or followers they had or they were checking back into these social sites every day to to see if they could, you know, get more information, connect with more people, play more, work more. And and that behavior was very interesting to me, so I wanted to sort of figure out why is it that we're so attracted to things that feel game-like and why is it that we're bringing game-like mindsets to places that they don't really belong. Um, you know, an example like something like uh, eBay, where you have a reputation score and you have countdowns and timers and the whole auction space is very game-like, um, very compelling to me. So I kind of went into uh, a little bit of a research mode to figure out what is it that's so magnetic about games and then it, are those things inherent to games or can those uh, mechanics and factors be applied elsewhere? Um, and the deeper in I got, the more I realized that you know, games are just learning engines, and learning happens in a lot of different places, and, and most importantly, in, in school and the workplace. So, I began to connect the dots and, and started to see parallels from there. Well, Aaron, what what motivates people to try new things and to seek out new learning experiences? I know you you talked a bit about that on your uh, on a video that I watched uh, recently, and so can you fill us in on that? Yeah, it's, it's actually. It's kind of interesting, you know, the brain, when I when I first started getting into the space, I didn't really understand that there was a dividing line between liking something and wanting something or sort of being satisfied and being motivated. But the brain has, you know, clearly differentiated pathways around those things and, and different neurotransmitters for each. And so um, once you sort of look at it that way, you see that there are many sort of achievements or experiences that we have that trigger opioids in the brain and make us feel very satisfied and very calm and very sort of inhibited and ready to curl up on the couch and go to bed. And then there are other activities that seem to to trigger our dopamine system, which is very much like a pleasure accountant and kind of is uh, is sending out messages that we need to keep pursuing, keep checking, keep looking. Maybe there's a prize around the corner, and I think that's sort of that survival instinct that all animals have, which is necessary if you're going to, you know, wake up in the forest in the morning and go find something to eat. And so um, that idea of, of the dopamine system being highly linked to an expectation about rewards and an expectation about what we might discover or might achieve uh, is really important. 
And we see that kind of um, come to life when you think about work and working to get a raise or a bonus or making it to the end of the week, to Friday, to that cocktail or whatever it might be. There are all these systems in, in our, you know, not na- natural world that kind of mimic that, um, that idea of the, the berry patch around the corner. And so, you know, things that trigger that, that trigger the dopamine system, uh, things that have, you know, uncertain success, that have a reward at the end, that have some kind of structure around how we're going to pursue a goal, um, tend to be more motivating than things that lack that structure or lack that reward or lack, um, you know, the, the sort of defining mechanics that trigger that side of the brain. I was just a small example you gave was about waiting for that next email or when that email comes and you know it's in your inbox. Oh, boy. <laughs> so it seemed like it was a bit tied to addictive behavior. Is that true? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think, um, as with so many things, the it's all about moderation, and, and there are um, – things that that behaviorally look a lot like addiction that if you turn them down a couple notches look a lot like success and look a lot like you know the the sort of studied pursuit of something so i think it's it's all about having uh control over you know your pursuit and being able to stop and being able to say no and and kind of mastering your own instincts in the same way that we have to do with you know diet and exercise frankly it's you know it's delicious to eat cupcakes but you can't eat them every day or you'll be you know you'll be a mess it's it's very engaging and motivating to chase uh, awards and points and badges and dollar bills and and uh, you know even email messages and see what's inside but if we don't sort of keep a, a self-control around that, we, we definitely lose out. And so I think it's, there's a balancing act there. But wherever you find those sort of natural drives that are so powerful and motivating, that's where, you know, if you can master it, you can find a lot of, um, a lot of success. Can you say something about the topic of boredom, which you, you tie into the work that you've done around the connection of, of uh, engagement in games and, and learning and work and, and how that idea of engagement looks very different than the idea of boredom. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, you know, there's one there's one particular um, researcher and, and psychologist that comes to mind, which is uh, which is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book called Flow that's pretty um, pretty widely widely known and, and quite ahead of its time. Um, but the thing that I didn't realize that sort of comes through in Flow is that boredom and anxiety are actually quite linked. And and if you look at sort of a chart of how challenging an activity is and how great your skills are at that activity. You get a sense of things that are very high challenge but you don't have the skills for, like, say, me playing golf with Tiger Woods, um, creates a lot of anxiety on the part of the participant. Things that you have high skills for and the challenge is very low create boredom. So I'm, you know, I'm able to do this with my eyes closed or I've been doing this for too long. And I often see that, surprisingly, I see that on the face of, uh, you know, cashiers and, and waiters, and I believe me, I've been both of those things before, um, you know, where, where there's, no, there's no more learning to, that's going to happen. There's no upper limit to what's going to – I mean, there is an upper limit to what you're going to do in that job because what you're going to do is repeat what you did yesterday. And so there's a lot of frustration and, and boredom that comes from that, realizing that there is no more challenge. You know, you're going to go, you're going to take the order, you're going to put it in, you're going to bring the food out, and you've done it a million times before – and you'll do it a million times again. And that sort of is very demotivating and creates that sort of state of boredom and disengagement because the mind instinctually knows that there's no new learning that's going to happen here. There's no skills that are going to be mastered here. And so it's not really worthy of our attention, so to speak. 
Well, on the other hand, you talk about how structure allows for more playfulness and learning. So can you talk a little bit about that and how filling the form might help um, us dive into, say, any one game that we might play? Yeah, yeah. So in the in the beginning of the of the book that I wrote, the uh, I basically outlined these two factors that kind of drive disengagement in some form or another, and those are lack of volition and lack of faculty. So lack of volition is this idea that I don't want to do something because maybe there's nothing in it for me or I'm not interested in that thing. So, you know, I don't want to go to the dance because I don't like to dance or I don't want to take the trash out because what's in it for me if I take the trash out. Um, And so that's one kind of inhibitor. But the other one is lack of faculty, which is to say, I don't really know how to succeed. I don't know how to start a business, so I'm not going to do it. Or I'm afraid I'll fail. I'm afraid that I won't. You know, I don't have what it takes, and, and so I don't believe in my own faculties. And that idea is very linked to structure. So if you create a game like Mario Brothers or a game on the Wii, um, the game has been built with the structure of your learning curve in mind. So you start as a basic little player. You do a few tasks. Then it makes it a little bit harder you do a few more, then it makes it a little bit harder. You level up, you make some, you know, you get some new weapons, etc. And so that system is very encouraging to someone with low faculty because you say, well, I can do this. I didn't think I could do this, but I can do this. Um, and, it, and it's the structure of the game and the way that it presents you with challenges and with new abilities that lets you get there. Now, on the other hand, there's a lot of jobs that are the opposite of that where they drop you into a role with very little structure, very little feedback, very little information about what you're supposed to really do and accomplish. And for people with low faculty in that situation, it's pretty disheartening. And it's sort of like, well, maybe I'll just hang low under the radar and hope I don't get fired. Or maybe I'll just kind of spend six months getting the lay of the land and then figure out what I'm going to do. So that relationship between faculty and structure is very important. That said... The structure part isn't telling someone exactly what to do, exactly how to do it, but it's telling them, here's your big picture goal. These are the resources you have at your disposal. These are the things that are working against you. This is what I need you to get done. Now you go figure out how to get it done. You know, Mario Brothers says save the princess. It doesn't say how to save the princess. So, you know, I think that's the, that's the key dynamic. Well, in all your playful research of, of games, what is your favorite game, Aaron? Well, that's a great question. I feel like I always have a, a sort of a game du jour. I mean, I'm an old school, uh, you know, board games guy. So you can you can get me with the game of Taboo or Clue or Pictionary or chess um, for uh-huh. sure, because I think those are very timeless in their in their design. And any game that you can play ten thousand times and not get bored of is is a really well designed game. Um, but I'm also uh, a pretty big fan of some of the new sort of iPhone, you know, and, and uh, Android BlackBerry platform games like a Tiny Wings or an Angry Birds, things like that that you can do on the subway. Um, you know, anything that you can do to sort of use a couple minutes of time uh, effectively in a game I think is, is quite exciting. Yeah, i got to love those Angry Birds. <laughs> it's amazing to see something like that where you've got, you know, the the Angry Birds Rio special edition that was the movie partnership they did you know first of all that's amazing that a, that an iPhone game is partnering with a Hollywood movie that's a sign of the times for sure and then to see it get downloaded 10 million times in 10 days uh, and to know that the population of people playing it is not just kids it's not just people at home it's you know executives it's people on you know in the back of a town car on the way to work. Um, that's when it really starts to blow your mind that uh, that there are investment bankers out there running around flinging birds towards uh, <laughs> towards statues and castles filled with green pigs. I mean, 
that's uh that's a sure sign that gaming has a toehold in culture. How do you translate that either in your own work or in examples that you've seen into how to how to use similar technology in the workplace in terms of say how people learn to do a new task at work based on what they might be doing more in a social or personal personal application um outside of work using the same technology. Yeah, are yeah. You, well, you know, are you I, working on that I think there are a lot of people working on that, and particularly people that have complex applications. So things like Microsoft Office or some of the, um, you know, visual design applications that are out there from Adobe, you know, these are things that take a long time to master. And so I've actually seen software companies crop up in the last few years that are dedicated just to creating game layers on top of those applications. So if you come to, you know, school or work and you need to learn how to use Adobe Illustrator, there's going to be a game layer that says, all right, we're going to learn to use this, but we're going to do it in a way that's fun and engaging. So instead of just having to sort of go through the tutorial, which if you guys have ever taken one for an application, it's about as boring as watching paint dry, um, it'll be much more interactive, much more based around a narrative scenario. And that's really, you know, we're, we're storytelling and story listening creatures. You know, we gather around the fire and, and, and talk. And I think just putting a narrative lens on almost any activity helps a lot. It's like now we're not just designing. We're designing something to save the world or to fix the spaceship or to, you know, to connect uh, one person to another or we're designing something for our kids or our wives or our husbands. Those, like, little little narrative stories that we can kind of wrap around an activity give it some meaning to us, and that tends to raise the stakes a little bit. So um, those types of applications do that. And then there's a lot of things that are out there that are just already using game mechanics that have just never gotten credit for it, you know. So the entire the entire stock market experience is totally gamified, um, but we just have never really seen it through that lens. We just see it as a numbers game. But, but yeah, I mean, the way people get feedback, the applications they're using to access it, the strategies that they're employing about what they're going to invest in and how, are you a swing trader or a short seller or a long-term player like Warren Buffett? I mean, that's no different than a game of Monopoly. So you just use the... Uh, the word uh, gamify in in that last comment, but I also thought I recalled you saying uh, in one of your presentations you you don't like the whole concept of gamification. And can you explain first of all what that is for people who don't know, and and what's good or bad about that concept? Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's hard to avoid using the word anymore because it's so pervasive. But the the movement is basically a group of people that are trying to apply game mechanics to predominantly website experiences, but also just general you know, experiences in life. So how do you add the elements of a game to the classroom, to the workplace, to a particular activity, to reading a book, to visiting a site? Um, and so things like when you see you know, a, a, a site like an eBay or a Kickstarter that has a, you know, a progress uh, indicator or a point system, something like Foursquare that is a mobile application that has badges in it, those are things that people would list as examples of that idea of gamification. The reason that I've been kind of a little bit against the uh, calling it that and, and even sort of getting into that into that uh, school of thought is that it seems to be very focused on using some very shallow game mechanics, almost what we would call meta mechanics that live on top of a game, like points and badges, um, 
to motivate behaviors in places that are particularly commercial. So how do we use a point system to get people to shop with American Airlines again? How do we use badges to get people to come back to our marketplace again? Um, and those things are great, but I, I like to take a slightly more humanitarian view here, or, and even, even one that works for the corporate side of things, and just say, you know, if real learning isn't taking place, if people aren't actually engaging with a game system that helps them grow or achieve, then what we're really doing is actually preying on people's compulsion to game rather than designing games within those environments that make them better people. And I feel like the movement of gamification is much more focused on how do we just slap a point or a badge on an experience to sort of trick people into being addicted to it, not make the experience better or worse. Um, and I'm much more interested in how do we break down an experience and look at it through a lens or a framework and say, what's working about this experience and what isn't working about it and how can we refine it to make it more structured in a way that lines up with people's expectations and makes them feel more engaged like they would if it were a true game. So it's a slight, it's a slight distinction, but it's an important one, which is to say if your end goal is just to benefit the enterprise or the corporation or the site you're working on, then um, I think you're kind of doing everyone a disservice. Well, with that in mind, how can you bring more play and creativity into work and education um, through some of the things you just talked about, but in more depth? How how can how, how have you found, or how have you been thinking about that? Well, I think that you know the the best way to do it is just to look for what are the skills that we're really trying to learn in any given setting? So, you know, when I when I talk about a game frame in the book, I basically outline the ten building blocks of an experience. And one of them is is the activity. So what are you doing? Are you playing basketball? Are you learning to cook? Are you doing an expense report? Whatever it might be. And and then what are the skills involved in, in working on that activity? Is it, you know, do you need to be really good at focus? Do you need to be good at math? Do you need to be good at you know, hand-eye coordination. What are the what are the pieces of the puzzle that uh, that add up? And if you can discretize those skills and get clear about what they are, then you can build um, feedback mechanisms and and narrative you know layers and things around developing those skills that are much more clear and create that little bit of structure that might make that activity more rewarding. So, for instance, if you're looking at something like an expense report and how people fill those out in corporate America every day and you know, largely want to kill themselves while they're doing it. Um, you know, the question is sort of how do you how do you take the skills that are involved in that and and stand them up and make sure that they're being developed in the activity. And the truth is that when you do that, when you look at things through that lens, you very quickly realize which things actually have a skill involved and which things don't. Which things have a long-lasting skill that's easy to kind of continue to develop over a lifetime, and which things are very shallow in their skill development. And that gives you kind of an insight into where you need to spend your time and energy working. So it also gives you a focus on what's the real purpose or the real value of this. You know, I had a discussion with, um, actually with my mother, who's a teacher, uh, last night, and we were talking about um, the capital of Nebraska and how useless that piece of information is in this day and age and why it's not really part of a, a valuable skill anymore. Um, and it's sort of a, it, you know, it's a hard thing to talk about because, on the one hand, it's something we all had to learn in school and seems important, but on the other hand, it's now you know a 10-second Google search away. And on top of that, it really has little to do with the day-to-day -day skills that you're going to use in, you know, in the course of uh, daily life unless you happen to live in Nebraska, and then by all means you should know what it is. So looking at things like that and saying, 
why are we learning geometry? Are we learning geometry for geometry's sake, or are we learning geometry to be part of a larger narrative, to be part of a design group, to be part of a structural engineering team, to save the, the bridge, to design you know, a new eco-material, et cetera? And so when you sort of loop those skills into larger stories and into more practical applications, that's really what a game is. It's saying, hey, are you good at shooting stuff? Yeah. Well, here's a, way. here's a place where you can practice your shooting skills in the context of a story where shooting actually matters for something. It's not, you know, if there was a game that came out that was just called shooting and you just loaded a gun and shot it in the air 20 times, I think that would be comparable, you know, comparable to today's geometry education, which is to say, here, pr practice some geometry. Shoot your gun in the air. But there's no, there's no reason. There's no scope. There's no, there's no story to that. There's no structure to that. So I think that's the... That's the big missing link, and that's as true in school as it is in corporate America. And you can't really lose yourself in in, in the sense of lose yourself in time or be fully engaged if you're just learning facts. Like what, is, <laughs> exactly. what is a, a triangle? <laughs> yeah, and, and our brains aren't really designed to learn that way. Our brains are designed to learn kinesthetically in the environment as we experience it. So as I go hunt for berries, um, you know, I, I figure out where they are. I learn lessons about where to walk. I learn lessons about predators that might be in the way. I, you know, I'm, I'm picking up things in a practical way versus sort of the more theoretical education that we have now, which is sort of much more focused on this abstract learning that just doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't add up to much. And when you look at it in, in total, you see an education built of a lot of skills that you don't actually need and missing some skills that you sorely need. Um, and one of my favorites is, you know, I hire people all the time here at Undercurrent and, you know, one of the number one skills you need to know in business today is how to write a perfect, succinct, clear, you know, email to someone that really gets a message across that, that makes the, uh, the action steps or, or feedback or information that needs to be communicated perfectly clear, short, crisp, respectful, et cetera. And that's not taught in school. It's not taught in high school. It's not taught in college. It's not taught at all. Uh, and yet we do that, you know, what, 50, 60, 200 times a day. So I think there are real missing links right now. Are you guys doing work yourselves in the education world around so many of the things you've shared with us um, in the interview so far that, you know, like you just said, are not happening in education by and large in terms of thinking about what it is you're trying to convey and the way that you're proposing and, and what we can take away from the game experience in terms of how we think about creating engaging experiences? Um, that, again, so much of that is not the way we approach designing an educational experience in the classroom, um, and of course, it's very different than the whole testing mentality that's focused on, you know, the discrete individual disciplines, like you were just saying with geometry. Uh, so, are you are you doing work? Are people inviting you to help them think about how to apply what you're talking about in educational settings? Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, we're cer we're certainly not being invited anywhere because I don't think the uh, the general institution is particularly interested in, in change, but everyone that's individually involved is super interested in change. Um, my, you know, in my day job, we work a lot more on the corporate side, but as an, as an author and, and kind of a representative of this, of this games movement, I've been trying to collect, um, you know, a group of people who are interested in applying some of this thinking to the educational space, and, and we're actually in the process of figuring out what that collective might look like, but with, with the clear mandate to kind of figure out ways to, to either provide directly to teachers or directly to school systems some of this thinking and some of this, uh, you know, really science 
in the form of structured curricula that are completely different than than what's on the menu right now. And there's actually a lot of that going on, um, even here in New York. Katie Salen has a uh, a small school called Quest to Learn that's a part of Institute for Play that's an entirely games-based education, which is just amazing. Um, and, and so it's really about how do you take examples like that and sort of bring them down to a level that they can be shared easily and distributed and, and kind of become a currency among teachers uh, as, they, as they kind of approach the classroom with, with a fresh set of eyes. And, you know, and so many people um, that I encounter in my work and play look at uh, work and play and um, often people see that at work is very much the opposite of play. And there's just a real hunger to find a purpose in life, meaning, and how to bring more engagement into every facet of life and whatever work you choose to do and the element that you really should be in as Dr. or Sir Ken Robinson talks about the element that many of us are not even close to and don't even know how to get to. I wonder what you I wonder what you have to say about that because there's so many people who are looking for ways to engage in every facet of their life. And I think um just my brief poking into Wii games and and uh, certainly Pictionary um, as a game. I love that. Um, those, I find myself losing, my, losing myself in that space, and um, certainly when I play. So what would you have to say about that for people who are hungering for a real engagement in their work and just day-to-day? Yeah, well, I think, I, I mean, I have two things to say about that. The first is that, you know, games do a really good job of raising the stakes, and so part of the way that you find yourself really focused and really engaged is when, you know, you have to be focused or you'll lose something, you'll lose your balance, your character will stop moving, you'll lose the race, you'll get shot, whatever it might be. But the stakes are always high. It's always life or death. It's always save the kingdom, save the princess, save the world, um, you know, or, or it's time-based. And so you're playing a game like Bejeweled and you have to, or Tetris, and you have to react quickly. If you look away, you're going to lose. And I think that part of part of what we need to do in the work environment to, to ratchet up engagement is just think in those terms. So how can I raise the stakes for myself, for my department, for my role, and how can I make my activity that I'm doing at the moment something where I can't look away, right? So instead of having a boring meeting, let's make it a brainstorm where our goal is to come up with 200 ideas by the end of 30 minutes or else we're all going to, you know, we're all not going to go out to a nice lunch. But if we do, we're going to have lunch brought in, et cetera. So, like, kind of figure out ways to raise the stakes in whatever way you can. Um, I think that's that's one that's key. And that's also probably a good idea in general just in terms of ambition and, and scaling businesses and, and focus. And then the other area is just think about some meta mechanics that you can layer over your existing job, your existing role, to make it more fun and more engaging in real time. Maybe you don't have control over exactly what you're doing right now, but you have control over how you're doing it. Uh, and my favorite example is, um, and this is sort of a, a little bit urban legendy, but I've actually met a couple people that definitely do this. Um, but there are doormen all over the city who, you know, clearly have a job that's very repetitive that could easily be extremely boring. Uh, but instead, a lot of the ones that are very good at it add some layers of game mechanics on top. So they'll, they'll play games with themselves like, can I memorize everybody's first and last name? Can I make 20 people in the next hour smile back to me when they walk past? 
can I, you know, they, they add these new challenges on top of their role for themselves that make it harder and harder. Uh, I've even heard of salespeople that have a goal to get the person on the other end of the phone to say a particular word or phrase back to them. Maybe it's a difficult word or phrase to get them to say. And they have to sort of play with how they talk and how they coax that out of the person on the other side of the phone. So there are little things like that that you can do that I think actually create quite a bit of fun in real time. Um, and I, I had a call recently with a friend uh, who was in, you know, riding in the car along with me while I was on a call, and he said, hey, um, I'm going to throw out words, and I want you to work them into the conversation without the person on the other line noticing that you're doing it. And we had a blast. I mean, this was a relatively <laughs> boring call, and we just absolutely were cracking up when the phone was on mute at how much fun we were having slipping in these funny words and phrases. So it's, there are ways to do it. You just have to kind of think like a game designer. We should start doing interviews this way. Exactly. <laughs> well, in the remaining 30 seconds or so, what, what piece of advice do you have for people who want to bring more deliberate attention to the, the role of play and games in, in their work and learning? Well, I would say just get out there and start and start reading and communicating. There's a, a website called Gameful.org that was started by Jane McGonagall and some other friends of mine that has a lot of game designers on it. Join that. Talk to those people. It's full of thousands of great game designers. Um, and start reading some of the blogs and some of the books that are out there on the space. It's really just happening right now in real time. So it's a good time to kind of get your bearings and maybe be ahead of some other folks. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Creativity and Play. Thanks for having me. Uh, Aaron Dignan is founding partner and CEO of Undercurrent and author of GameFrame. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dolberg. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you.